welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. And I'm Joey Boudreaux. And we certainly appreciate you joining us. Uh, There's so much going on here in the state. Uh, We have a number of students who have adopted LOPA, and their goal is to help increase our donor registry. So we are excited to find out what they're going to do to make that happen, right? We're trying to reach um, a part of the population that doesn't normally talk about organ donation, but maybe you can help us. We'll tell you how to do that. Also in this episode, lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff, Lori. In our recovery segment, we're going to talk about one of our fellow organ recovery agencies, and they've done something that no other organ recovery agency has done before. They got a first. It is the first. Nobody forgets the first. We love that. Uh, We'll also talk about what's called postvention. What is it? Why is it important? Why are we talking about it today? Tune in. And of course, as we do in every episode, we'll be honoring a hero. Yeah, that and much, much more here on The Gifted Life. What's important is that you partner with us to make sure that this information goes past you. Yep. So spread the word. We're spread so easy to find now. Easy to find. Yeah. You can always look us up on lopa.org on mm-hmm. our website. And of course, we are on pretty much every podcast app now. So look us up, The Gifted Life, on any of your favorite podcasts. On our social media as well. So on Facebook, we're Donate Life Louisiana. So a lot of things that we talk about, you'll yep. see pictures, post more information there. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, at Donate Life LA. Yeah. And we want you to be a part of this. We want this to be interactive. We have a hotline. You can call, leave a message. We may yep. use part of that Absolutely. here on the podcast. So it's 504 648 3477. 504-648-3477. I think I got it. You got it. All right. Here on The Gifted Life. Stay tuned. We have reached the recovery segment of The Gifted Life podcast. And Joey, right now, we want to talk about a rare feat by an organ procurement organization, and that is earning a Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award in 2015. It's the highest presidential honor for performance excellence, and this is commitment to excellence through innovation, improvement, and visionary leadership. One of the winners, Mid-America Transplant Services. Yes. Amazing. It is amazing, And, and from our own experience, it's a journey that we began uh, just a couple years ago, and fortunately for us, we have on the phone Dean Kappel. He is the CEO of MidAmerica Transplant Services in St. Louis, Missouri. They are certainly one of the most innovative organ recovery agencies in the nation, and their Baldrige journey is something that everyone is striving to emulate. So welcome aboard, Dean. Thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Dean, my first question, what inspired you guys to pursue Baldrige? Well, you know, it goes back to the uh, early 2000s when the HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration of the U.S. government, began what was called a national collaborative to share best practices with the goals of increasing donation across the United States. And so that was a very exciting time where, frankly, we saw donation increase about 25% over the course of three or four years in the U.S., and prior to that, we had seen really very nominal increases. At the same time, one of our healthcare systems in St. Louis, SSM Healthcare, uh, won the Baldrige Award, and they were the first healthcare organization in the United States to win the Baldrige Award. And I was intrigued by their approach to performance improvement, 
to the processes that they went through to not only get better as an organization, but to sustain those results. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of the fusion of those two events at the same time that sort of gave me hope. I would tell you that uh, if you had talked to my staff in the prior 10 years, we were always looking for a business model that would help us get better and stay better. So I was known for going to uh, industry meetings and I would learn something interesting or something I thought might have an impact. And we would go down that road and we would implement teams or different kinds of approaches. And my staff pretty well knew that if they waited me out, within a year, I'd be on to something else. Mm-hmm. It was a bit disappointing that I was really never able to find a model, if you will, that made sense and that we could continue to work on. So. When I began to explore the Baldrige criteria, which is really just fundamental, great business practices based upon the literature and science of management, I realized that there were key components to our organization in areas where we were good, areas where we were average, and areas where we needed a lot of help. And so by looking at the criteria and by learning from other organizations across the United States that had been Baldrige winners, I realized that this was really the way for us to go. You know, I should point out that healthcare is now the largest applicant for the Baldrige Award. About 50% of the applications to the United States are coming from healthcare organizations. But it really started in manufacturing. And Malcolm Baldrige uh, was the Secretary of Commerce during the Reagan administration. And some of you aren't old enough to remember back then, but in those days, from a commercial standpoint, uh, the United States was getting killed by the Japanese, and particularly in the area of quality. I mean, that was the beginning of the rise of everybody buying Japanese cars and running away from American-made cars Mm -hmm. because they were terrible and their quality was so deficient. So this was a, a, a project that was established by Secretary Baldrige to adopt best business practices and try to share them across industries, whether it was manufacturing, whether it was healthcare, education, and not-for-profits. It really doesn't matter. And one of the things you learn pretty quickly as you get involved with the Baldrige criteria is that they're really basic criteria that impact any kind of business. And so you're able to learn from industries that you'd be surprised to learn from. For example, one of the two-time Baldrige winners is the Ritz-Carlton. And so I've listened to presentations by their leadership team around really understanding your customer and the lengths that they go to. And so if any of you have ever had the privilege of staying in the Ritz-Carlton, you know that's a really great experience. Well, I would tell you that's not an accident. And they have systems behind that to make sure that happens. So what I wanted to do was to take that commitment to excellence and put in place systems and processes so that we would make organ donation as effective as we possibly could. So that's kind of a long answer to a short question. And certainly creating excellence and sustaining it is something that you guys were able to do. When you guys started in the 10-year journey, basically, you have doubled the amount of lives saved. Huge credit goes to you and your agency for that. That is amazing. You mentioned the collaborative that took place in the early 2000s. You guys were in the midst of building the first standalone ICU and operating room within the OPO world. So you had the first one while you were trying to obtain the Baldridge Award. So tell me how Baldridge and the journey helped 
with establishing your facility the way it is? Well, they're definitely related. So the reason we first considered establishing a, an off-site organ recovery operation was really by listening to our customers and partners. In one of our major level one trauma centers had active trauma cases. We received a complaint from one of our trauma surgeons, and he made the point very emphatically that he was supportive of donation, but when we were doing donors in the hospitals, we were very disruptive of the normal flow of things in the hospitals, and everything we need done needs to be done yesterday. And he made the point, pretty compelling, that he was supportive of donation, but he also had other patients that he was trying to save their lives. And if we utilized resources heavily, that was going to you know, make that difficult. Now, you, you might remember, in, you know, this is in the early 2000s, and in those days, as part of the collaborative, one of the big pushes in the collaborative was increasing the number of organs transplanted per donor. And all of us were doing multiple different interventions to try to increase the yield, particularly for thoracic organs in those days. And we put in place a process where we were trying to streamline the time we spent in hospitals. And what we found after working on it very diligently for about a year and a half was that we were actually getting worse rather than getting better and decided that maybe the only way we could ever really address his concerns was could we move a donor from the hospital. And we reflected back on the first heart-lung donor that occurred in St. Louis and at the time that happened, the surgeon that was going to implant the heart-lung wanted the donor in the adjacent OR suite, and the donor was in a community hospital. So this was like 1987, and we got permission, and we moved the donor on the respirator from the community hospital to the transplant center, and the transplant took place that way. So that gave birth to this idea of maybe there's another way to do this. And I must tell you, initially, we were thinking about having a mobile OR, much like as you have a, you know, an MRI van or right. some mammography vans that travel around the area. And then, you know, the more we thought about that, and the logistics of that was seemingly very difficult. And we thought, well, maybe there's a better way for us to do this. Earlier, we had built out an operating room suite where we were covering tissue donors, bone and soft tissue donors that way. And we essentially just extended that and, and gave it a try to see if we could do the same thing with organ donors. So we've now transferred and recovered over 1,500 organ donors in our own facility over the years. Last year we did 190 organ donors with the exception of DCDs, which we do not move. Over 90% of them were moved to our facility. We have a three-bed ICU unit. We have a couple of operating room suites, we have a CT scanner, and we have cardiac cath capabilities. So what we've really been able to do is to move out of the hospitals much more quickly. And in fact, right now, at the point a patient is declared brain dead, on average, that patient is moved from the hospital to our facility in less than five hours. Right. So we spend very little time in the hospital, and we have much more control over how the donor is managed what kind of laboratory tests we perform. We do our own bronchoscopies. We can do repeat CT scans. We can do chest x-rays. Essentially, anything we need to do to optimize the donor organs, and we have more control over that. So what's next? Oh, that's really a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
have to leave that to my successors because mm-hmm. what's next is I'm retiring. Right. Oh. Yep. So um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of excited to see what they do. We've been blessed with a board of directors that have been, many of them have been with us for a long time and are well represented of the, of the broader community and have been very supportive of us taking calculated risks. So I'm sure that there will be new things to come. I think that there will be more and more opportunities for like-minded OPOs to collaborate with each other. I think we're going to have to find new ways to do business because I think our model is pretty expensive and we duplicate a lot of services and there may be opportunities for collaboration or maybe even consolidation. Well, happy soon-to-be retirement. Well, thank you. That that is sad to hear after doing all all that good work, but I guess you've earned it, huh? <laughs> well, I don't know if I've earned it or not. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate but, you joining us. This is Dean Kappel with Mid America Transplant Services, and we want to say congratulations yep. to Mid America Transplant Services for securing the Baldridge National Quality Award for their commitment to excellence. Okay, guys, here on The Gifted Life, it's our family support segment. We have had a continuing conversation, and this is kind of the the close of that. But, Joey, we talked about suicide signs and myths. We talked about coping. And today we're going to talk about postvention. It's a learning conversation. We want to spur those healthy conversations. Yes, and, of course, as we've talked about, Sally's been a very integral part of our family services and A big part of that is working with the suicide survivors. And this gentleman has been working with Sally. He's an expert. Like you said, he's developed what's called postvention. Which we'll learn about. And he's been working with her. He works with the Baton Rouge Crisis Intervention Center. They've been working together for quite some time. At this time, I would like to introduce Dr. Frank Campbell. He is a former executive director of the Baton Rouge Crisis Intervention Center past president of the American Association of Suicidology, forensic suicidologist, and he's also appeared in three Discovery Channel documentaries about his work in developing the active postvention model known as the LOSS team. We'll hear more about the LOSS team from Frank, and we are so glad you're here with us today, and welcome. Well, thank you. Glad to be on the show. Would you please tell us a little bit more about the Lost Team to begin with, and then we have a few questions for you. Okay. Well, postvention, if you think about it, the word post just modifies vention. And the reference here is that in prevention, we know that that comes before something. The pre part introduces whatever it is that's going to be done. Uh, intervention means that it's coming during that activity. So enter just introduces the middle part of that where it's going on. And postvention means after. So if you think of suicide and you think of it in a circle surrounded by these three words, then we know that prevention work is much of what you've been doing in the podcast prior to this, talking about warning signs and things that families and individuals can be aware of. Intervention is when we train people to actually help a person at risk not die by suicide. So that may be face-to-face, it may be a crisis line. It could be that the person intervenes actually all on their own by just realizing they have a reason to live. 
So it's a very complex behavior, that intervention piece. Mm-hmm. But the last one, postvention, are those activities that occur either after an attempt or after a death by suicide. And the focus I've spent most of my time on is after there's a death by suicide. So postvention would be those activities of reaching out to the survivors, as you said earlier, meaning those left behind, not those who have attempted and lived. Those folks are attempters. And there's actually a new training uh, that's come along that I'm calling post-intervention to suggest when a person has attempted, but now there's a way to help them be safe in the future. So we've actually introduced now an even different term into this matrix of uh, pre, inter, and post. Mm -hmm. The post for me and my discussion today will be there has been a tragic death of someone by suicide, and we're reaching out to all of the different people that will be affected, impacted, and questioning uh, what they could have done, what might have been different, how it affects them in the future, and they will have elevated risk in the future just by exposure to losing someone they cared about to suicide. So that's the focus, and the active prevention model means that we go to those survivors instead of them having to stumble onto us. So that's the difference about active versus passive. Frank, when your team does go out or a team goes out to talk with the family at the scene, which is obviously very traumatic for not only the family involved, but for the responders that come out too to talk with them, how does this team talk with the families right there when there's so much going on? Well, one of the tremendous values, unspoken values of this team is that most of the teams are made up primarily of individuals who have experienced this loss themselves. And so when they go to a scene, they have not only had that experience, they've gotten the help they needed to heal to the point where they could actually reach altruism and give back to others that are newly bereaved by suicide. So the main thing they do at the beginning is introduce themselves. And amazingly, you see the newly bereaved look up and lock eyes because what is psychologically happening at that moment is the installation of hope. The newly bereaved receive a sense of hope and belief that they can survive this just by needing someone further down the road who has experienced a loss by suicide. And that is an unstated outcome that we see reported over and over throughout the world where the lost teams operate. Mm -hmm. And this locking eyes really is a signal that says, I'm here for you Mm -hmm. from the volunteer that's out at the scene. And it says to the newly bereaved, you'll survive this, I did. But their goal at the scene is to merely refer the family to where help is. The research I did early on and looking at people coming for help following suicide suggested that the average length of time between death and coming for help was over four and a half years. That means that there were certainly people coming in sooner, but Mm -hmm. we also had people coming in 10, 20 years out. So the average was such a dramatic figure that we thought, how could we reduce the length of time between death and getting help? Mm Mm-hmm much like organ procurement. You want to get out there as quick as you can. Everything matters. Sooner is better than later. 
so that same philosophy guided my interest in trying to be at the scene so we could refer people quicker. Mm-hmm. And what we learned, and it seems to be, it bears out among all the crisis programs and lost team programs that use this active model, is that people come in on average under 60 days if they've had a lost team visit. And that's held up now for all these wow. years. So for uh, me, we have found uh, the magic key to helping people get help sooner, and that's by letting them know when they're in this horrible place where they can't imagine life being any better, mm-hmm. that through the installation of hope of a volunteer who comes out and the knowledge of where to go when they're ready, and the role modeling of somebody who says, I've been where you are and I'm here because I went there, we mm-hmm. find people come in on average within two months and get help, help they need to survive what is considered one of the most traumatic and dangerous grief processes we know of. Wow. So talking about being able to be impactful on someone's life at a time when they have nowhere else to turn, this really can make a major difference as far as people just going through the grieving process, making sense to some degree of what's happening. You know, this this is very similar, if you think about it, to families who do organ donation. They have a chance for something good to come from a Mm -hmm. loss that has been difficult for them, regardless of the cause of death. Right. Well, for the survivors, they not only have that opportunity to consider organ donation or maybe get enrolled or their family member may have already been had agreed to this, they just forgot about it. Not only do they have that opportunity for something good to come out, but now they see even something good could come from them. They could actually experience what is today in the literature called post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know a lot about post-traumatic loss, you know, post-traumatic stress, and we know about all the dangers of it being exposed to a traumatic situation. But there actually is quite a body of evidence growing about post-traumatic growth. And that's what we see in the folks who not only go out to the scene, they're living examples of that, but they create that, that internal kernel of belief that maybe one day this person could make something good come out of their tragedy by actually one day being on the other side of that mm-hmm. couch and talking to somebody newly bereaved. And we've seen that happen multiple times. That's the most consistent story is someone says, I remember the day someone came in my home and now I'm the one going in helping newly bereaved people. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we hear that a lot. That's one of the most important pieces of information I think that any family member wants to be able to hear or experience that not all is lost and to have that hope for the future. It's very difficult sometimes for people to even realize something like this could be available to them. And, you know, too, Frank, I think just listening to what you're having to say here, I'm going to do a little bit more research from the information you're talking about with the growth aspect because I think our families could certainly benefit from myself and my coworkers having a little bit more in-depth information about that to present it in more of a, a positive manner. Right. So that's just great information. Thank you so much. Right, you're welcome. And Dr. Campbell, if you could, I know that you said there's a, a conference coming up later this year where uh, lost team volunteers gather, and we do want to give folks information if they want to go on the website like we did and just kind of learn and and read at our own leisure but it's lost team 
Team.com, LostTeam.com, if you want more information about what was talked about today. But this national conference is pretty impactful, right? Right, it is. Uh, it stays in the same location for two years and then moves to another part of the United States. And so the seventh conference is coming up next year in Fort Worth, Texas, for the second year there. And then it'll move to Phoenix, Arizona for two years. But the dates right now, September 28th and 29th of 2016 in Fort Worth, my website will have a registration posting at some point. So anyone who goes to www.lostteam.com would find that. Now, let me just make sure that I spell this word. Um, It's L-O-S-S. T-E-A-M, and it stands for Local Outreach to Suicide Survivors. That's what the loss part means, uh, because local is so much more important than having some national program. The national conference is just an opportunity for us to share experiences, learn from others, um, much like your podcast, a chance to not just chop wood, but stop and sharpen the axe a little bit, learn a little bit more about what we can do to make our job easier. Wow. Well, we have learned, you know, we we like to spur those healthy conversations, so we appreciate you taking the time out to be with us and to help us, Dr. Campbell. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the important work you're doing. Thanks, Frank. Talk to you soon. It is now time in the podcast where we pause to honor a hero. Absolutely, Laura. As we do in every podcast, uh, we will be honoring in this podcast Connor Marcel. And these words are from mom. They wanted to tell us about their beautiful baby who saved lives through donation. His name is Connor. He was only two and a half years old, only child, and the most important person in their lives. Mom quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom, and she's so glad that she did. She has two years of spending every second of every day with that beautiful baby boy. They had tried for 13 years to have a child of their own when they finally decided to adopt, and that road led them to Connor. On April 22, 2005, he was adopted from Korea. She says, when he got off the plane with his escort and was placed in our arms, he looked at us as though to say, where have you been? I love that part. On June 30th, my 40th birthday, Mom writes, we left Connor with a friend. My husband and I went to dinner and a movie. On that night, Connor died tragically. We don't know exactly what happened. All we know is that our lives will never be the same after losing our special little angel. This is why we decided to donate Connor's organs so that another family would not have to feel the pain that we felt and to know that Connor's life, no matter how short, would have as much meaning to others as he did to us. And this is pretty powerful. There is more on our website, lopa.org, Faces of Donation. Click on Connor's story, and you'll see his adorable little pictures, and you could read more about this story, and you can see other heroes there. And that's what this is all about, honoring those who gave the gift of life. At this point in the podcast, let's pause and say thank you to Connor for the gift of life. Question and answer time. What happens if I die in Texas, but am registered in Louisiana? We have an answer. We do. We still, Laurie, have the ability to access each state's registry, whether whether in Texas or Tennessee or Florida, for that matter. So we have the ability 24 hours a day to access, and then we can make sure that everyone's wishes are followed. Yeah, it's like a team effort. 
yep. to make life happen. Yep. There you go. You have more questions you want to expand further? Info at lopa.org, or you can call us on that hotline, 504-648-3477. That's 504-648-3477. Another episode of The Gifted Life in the books. That's right, Lori. We want to give a special thanks to Dean Kappel, the CEO of uh, Mid-America Transplant Services, and new soon-to-be retiree, which I'm very jealous of. I can hear him smiling when he said that. (laughs) But yeah, congrats to them. Absolutely. For their winning the Baldrige Award, it is an amazing accomplishment. And also want to give a special thanks to Dr. Frank Campbell. He developed a postvention model and gave us a little bit more about his expertise on suicidology along with Sally. And more on that, lossteam.com, L-O-S-S team.com. So thanks to them. Also, I want to say a special thanks to some special kiddos. I'm going to put as many S's in here as possible. (laughs) But they have adopted LOPA, and what they want to do is help us increase the registry. And so they hold table sits on campuses. So you'll see this at LSU Southeastern, other campuses as well. And what they're doing is helping us in the classroom on campus just spread awareness about organ donation because they're on that same level. They are passionate about donation and we appreciate everything. And we hope that you can join us as well. Spread the word about this podcast. Follow us on social media. Help spread the word. Get involved. We talked about the different events going on across the state. You know, jump in, do it. Do something that you haven't done to help us spread awareness. You can do it. Join the team. Help us save more lives. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 